0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist here at the Washington Post, and I'm a fangirl of this next person. But my first guest today is Teresa Galaducci. She's a professor of economic policy analysis at the New School in New York. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope I don't like
1: go
2: overboard <laughs> because I love, love your work. Um, you, you started before I could start. Um, I'm a fan of yours and have been for, for decades. Um, and in yeah. fact, you're an inspiration for me. I'd say it for me, applying my research work to actual people's lives. So thank you for the, being an inspiration. Yeah, and I really
0: appreciate you speaking out on this topic so much. So let's just dive right in. So let's talk about the economy. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's been so volatile uh, the last few months, really the last year. And it's impacted a way that we spend and save our money. So talk to us about what Americans should think, especially women, should mm. we be mindful with of our spending habits? You know, how is the economy impacting our
2: finances? right? Um, so as soon as the pandemic hit, I worked twice as hard, probably you did too, because it up uh, it changed women's roles in their family and their workplace. Um, they were the ones that were um, taking their laptops into the closet um, make, and because the other family was in the other part of the room needing care and going back and forth. They also took time, women took to take care of not only just um, school-aged children, but also, and I think this is, was underground, to take care of um, older, older adults. When their mother couldn't leave the house, um, it was the daughter, the adult daughter, who went and brought her groceries. So there was a lot of elder care and child care um, demands that impacted their labor force participation. So I'm really watching how much that one year or two year absence from the labor force will affect you know, eventual wealth accumulation. So that's just not, you know, not working and not saving because you're not working. The other thing that happened was a big cost of living increase uh, and that meant that women, Save women's savings were called upon to help fill those gaps in a family budget. We've always known that a woman's um, individual retirement account or her four hundred and one k was kind of a family business. You know, it was seen as the pot which the family could um, dive into. The um, fathers or male um, IRAs and four hundred and one ks aren't invaded. Um, as much as as women's 401k so I'm also watching to see how those withdrawals um, and the lack of savings uh, are, is going to impact women's wealth accumulation so you talked a lot about the differences uh, specifically how
0: has the economy the aftermath of the pandemic, uh, differed between men and women. So you talked a little bit about the retirement account. Are there other ways that we yeah. saw women being impacted differently than men, and how they
2: responded differently than men might have? Yeah, the biggest one was labor force participation. You know, the mothers would would drop out sooner than fathers, but women have bounced back. Um, at when. Healthcare and education went back online, the women went back to work. So I'm very happy to say that labor force participation gaps are now closing and women have recovered um, in terms of their um, economic engagement. And you've talked about this in your own life, Michelle. That's the key to lifelong security and maybe self-empowerment is stay connected to the labor force. Jobs yeah. have a lot of problems, you know. the um, The um, subordination you have at work have a lot of problems, but not having a job is a problem. Um, so I am very happy to see that women's attachment to the labor force has come back. Um, but I do think it will have women. Women went into debt more, and women uh, women's wealth went down because of their of inflation and because of uh, absences from the labor force. It, they invaded their their. Already smaller retirement funds. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: I think we're going to see some some health differences over time because of the cortisol levels um, that women face more than men. And that's a broad brush. Things weren't easy for men. There's no way they had they had a picnic, you know, while women didn't. Um, but women tend to be more involved in the intimate and social and emotional care work. Um, At work, and since those were those depressions and those stressors, which much higher for a family, it's going to impact in general um, the female more than uh, male because of the gender division of labor.
0: And because it impacted us a little bit more, are there lessons learned going forward, particularly as it relates to retirement security? Because you know we do tend to live longer, although my husband says because I nag him more, but you know. <laughs> but I mean, y'all joking aside, I mean you almost have to have a sense of humor about this because we don't want to come at this so in such a depressed, you know, depressed way of looking at it. But there really is a difference between what women have
2: in terms of retirement security than men, right? Yeah. 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 And also, you know, what we're doing here is analyzing the obvious. Um, but because women um, invade their savings more, earn less to begin with, and have fewer years in the labor force, they have less money when they retire. I mean, that's amazing because men on average um, will retire for about 14 years and women on average about 18 years. You know, wow. so just the differences in retirement time. Also, women are more likely to have morbidity or needing assistance with. Um, with daily living activities. So they're going to need more home health care and more help in general. Um, So women's expenses in retirement are going to go up for every year and the years are higher. So there are public policies that we can put into place. One is to put back all those care provisions that were in the democratic infrastructure bill. I know that sounded really nerdy, but that had paid sick leave and that had home health care expansions uh, that improved. The work that home health care workers get, since women do that, it'll help their lives as well. So we need to fund care work and not just make that a private tax, you know, on women. That will help their retirement security. We probably need to lower the Medicare age, you know, to sixty, um, so that women workers can stay in the labor force and their employers, you know, won't have to pay for that health insurance. That will help a lot. Help men as well. Um, you know, we we also need to have some kind of long term care um insurance um uh, women are much more likely to have to use long term care because women take care of their older husbands um so that has to be part of medicare so that's a big long laundry, laundry list and we know the state of congress
0: Uh, It's going to be even more challenging with the new Congress being so split down the middle, so margins. Do you really think any of that's going to get done, in particular, the long term care, you know, as part of Obamacare or the um, uh, they had a provision in there for long term care coverage, which was just decimated? I mean, think about that if we had that before the pandemic. Is there any yeah. hope that any of that will get through to this Congress
2: that is so divided? You know, I asked about five people in preparation for this um, for our interview and asked that same question to experts in the field. And I was reminded by very eminent sociologists, look at, 20 years ago, this would not even been a major demand. You know, the idea that women that women are doing necessary, care work for free, it's necessary for the economy, and that all families, sons too, are going to be faced with the long-term care needs of their parents is now a national conversation. So in in short, the answer is yes, there's lots of hope, because the need is affecting tens of millions more people. Um, Back in the day, when we first talked about it, there were probably 10 million fewer people who were reaching those... um, Those ages of uh, vulnerability. So just the sheer size of the um, boomers, you know, coming into their needy years and the generation behind them being more educated. um, This is going to be a demand, just like Social Security was obvious. This is totally obvious. Yeah, that's good.
0: Well, there's hope then. So can <laughs> yes. we switch to the confidence gap? There's, there's lots of data that shows there's a confidence difference between women and how they handle their money and men. I see it in my work in the community. And it's so interesting when I look at the data, it's not as if they're smarter than us. Oh, I
2: no <laughs> you know me.
0: But why <laughs> is there that confidence gap
2: with women when it comes to their money? yeah we uh you know we both have looked at this for for decades. Some of it has to do with the uh, math confidence um, differences like starting in fourth grade. Well, that's closing. Um, but it's not just the um quantitative you know um, uh, uh, ability or confidence. it's also the the many different needs that a woman's dollar has competing for it. Um, when women make a dollar, they're also allocating some of that dollar for their kids, you know, or for their longer lives when they're going to be alone. So there's lots of uh, pressure and stress on on where that smaller dollar of savings is going to go. So I think some of that confidence um, gap is explained by a higher level of anxiety. But again, this, and also just the lower levels of earnings that women have will make anybody with lower incomes a lot more risk averse than people who have maybe ten, you thousand know, dollars a year to kind of throw around. So some of it isn't gender specific. It has to do with social and gender division of labor, but, but also just because of um, the economics of it that women make $0.83 um, cents for every dollar a man makes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Uh, Can you take a couple of questions from our audience? Uh, I love my favorite. (laughs) So let's go to a question from uh, Krista from Maryland. Uh, And Krista asks, what advice do you have for the parents saving for college and retirement? What is the best ratio of where to put your money? I love this
2: question. Uh, What what do you think? Yeah, and I've I've been talking to, Hundreds of women, you know, all at once, and they and that question almost always comes up. Um, the ratios should much more be weighted towards your retirement. Lots of reasons, because a dollar spent for retirement and saved will accumulate more investments just because you have a longer time to um, to save. Also, your children's college costs are really uncertain. If you have a big college savings fund, you may um, make yourself ineligible for a lot of financial aid. Um, you may stretch yourself and send your kid to a college that is really too expensive to go and I teach at one of those expensive exclusive private colleges. Um, sometimes a you know a, a public school is a lot better deal even if it's for the first two years. So mm-hmm. the um, the cost of college, is, um, you know, kind of meets whatever money you have, then you'll spend all of it. So by far, the priority is your retirement savings. So I would put it at 90 10 90% for your retirement 10% for college. Wow. I didn't I didn't think it would be that high. But can I push back yeah. just a little bit? You know, I'm still a fangirl.
0: So when yeah. people, when women and, and men families hear what you just said, what they yeah. translate into is all in retirement, not much for college. That's but true. if women are earning less, uh, we're living longer. Uh, perhaps the conversation isn't that you shouldn't try to do both. But that the college make better choices when it comes to where to send your kids' to college, which you addressed, starting mm-hmm. out at community college, despite the fact that you work at a great university. Maybe you just can't afford that. Is that? Can we push that message through
2: even more? Because they hear ninety and ten, and they really just hear a hundred. Yeah, I w- and I and I almost want to say a hundred. You know, um, you should you should make sure you have enough money so that your ch- child knows that you want them to go to college and that you'll pay for those first six months. But that college money is really their investment to their human capital. You know what I'm really stressing that it's more important to save for retirement because that's what your kids want. Your kids want you to be secure in retirement and they wanna live their own lives. That's the best thing you can do for your kid. Also in America, private, private schools and public schools are really equivalently just as good. Uh, And so this idea that a private school is much better than a public school is marketing. Um, So we really have to pay attention to the cost of college. It's really too expensive uh, for most people. The other thing is, is I've heard so many parents say, all right, I'm taking money, mothers, taking money out of my 401k, I'm gonna start saving to send my kid to, you know, insert name of private college. Maybe he'll take care of me when he gets old, old, you know, tee hee. Well that's an intergenerational kind of legacy burden that doesn't have to be there. So somewhere along the line expensive college became kind of a middle class aspirational good and I think that we need to change our mindset about how most Americans can get a really good college education for half the cost. That's such a great point. I've got three
0: 20-some-year-olds, Love and I too. keep asking, are you going to take care of me in my old age? And I'm telling you, there's a lot
2: of pausing. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? And do you so, mean, mean it? Do, do you mean it, or what are you saying when you're saying that? I'm. you mean it? Um, so what, they, I,
0: what I, yeah, go ahead.
2: Well, go ahead. No, I want to hear. Sorry, I asked no, you the so question.
0: What I mean is, actually, I mean, are they going to make sure they oversee my Physical care and the money because my husband, we're putting away a lot of money because I'm not trusting them them 20 something years to put out of their pocket. So that's actually what I mean when I say it. Uh, But I think a lot of other adults actually do mean, are you
2: going to like help pay for me? And to your point, I don't think we can count on that. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think there's a lot of problems that happen when you do that. Launching your kids to be independent adults um, is the best the best thing you can do. And you being independent is really necessary. I hear a lot of my college students really freaked out about the way their parents um, manage their money. You know, their parents are kind of aging boomers, and they say, "I don't want to save like my parents. My my parents never thought ahead, and they're the ones that probably mortgaged their house to pay for their kids' college. But their kids wanted them to be independent." Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and also to your point at the very beginning and we're going into Christmas season and this is when I become a humbug and talk about, you know, what are the real needs and watch your Christmas budget. Um, but we really all as Americans in a capitalist society, just say it out, you know, out loud, we have to be really mindful of buying things to make us happy for the short run. And when I'm saying short run, the neuroscientists say that the serotonin, the dopamine hit you get from buying something lasts for about 24 hours. Wow. Most people, people, it takes 24 to 48 hours. And often what that buying does is just create another... Um, need for another dopamine surge to go buy that next thing. So it will often breed more dissatisfaction than satisfaction. So being mindful about uh, the pumpkin pie and the buying is really important for the next six weeks or five weeks. Wow.
0: Oh, my gosh. Our time is almost up. But I do want to try to get this last question in like really, really quick. Um, So Tiffany wanted to know what criteria should I use to select a financial advisor? And I know that's a big question in like 30 seconds.
2: But if you could do it. It's so easy. I wrote a Bloomberg um, opinion blog about this uh, uh, article, and I think it's the most popular one I've ever written. How to pick a financial advisor is the name of it. And it's one that is not conflicted, one that it only charges you a fee. Run away from advisors that say, "Oh, there's no fee involved." They get paid. Believe me, they get paid um, with kickbacks from the products that they sell. So you'll want to spend about eight hundred to a thousand dollars to have someone come in, like you would, like you know, a, a doctor, to look at your whole case, um, to give you some advice, and then. Um, have that relationship terminate. You need the tools to run your own money. You may need someone to to set you up, but get a non-conflicted advisor. Wonderful. Oh, you
0: did it. You did it. Look, we are out of ta- time. I could just spend hours talking to you about this. Uh, so, Teresa, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and I'm actually going to do a column about that whole, you know, how did you get from that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, don't go away, folks. We will be right back. My next guest is C. Nicole Mason. So, please stay with us because this is a great conversation. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
3: Thank you for having us here today. I am Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, and I am joined by Denise Chisholm. She is senior equity strategist at Fidelity Investments. Denise researches investments and the market using historical probabilities and data. She's going to explain what's happening in the markets right now and why it matters. We're going to break down inflation, volatility, how it might impact your money, the outlook for markets, and next steps and actions you may want to consider. So let's just set the scene. As we come into this period, we know that we had a very long time of low inflation. This is before the COVID era. But over the past year or so, we've seen the highest price increases in decades. At the same time, markets have been volatile. There's so much uncertainty and economic pressures. And of course, this impacts the way we see opportunities and challenges. So let's get right into it, Denise. Inflation is top of mind. Let's start with some context. Why has inflation risen so dramatically? And what does it really mean for the economy and for markets?
4: Sure. What you're saying this year is obviously investing involves risk as well as return. You saw the return coming out of the pandemic, but the risk this year, and sometimes that risk involves capital loss. And part of the driver behind that this year has been those high levels of inflation that you touched on. Coming out of the pandemic, we really saw unprecedented fiscal stimulus globally, coupled with supply chain disruptions that really have led to those elevated prices that we haven't seen in the better part of 40 years. You see it at the pump, you see it at the grocery store, you've seen it in house prices. What's important for investors to understand is that not all levels of inflation are actually a bad thing. In fact, too little inflation can be actually problematic for equity market investors as well. But regarding the high levels of inflation, that is why the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates at a very rapid clip, to get inflation under control, to grow the economy at a more normalized level historically. And what you're seeing is what has been evident in history, which is
3: when policy is normalized by the Federal Reserve, you have an equity market correction. So the market corrects. Let's talk a little bit about the broader economy with the Fed raising rates. Does that necessarily mean we are headed into a recession? It doesn't
4: necessarily, but what we have seen before this quarter is two sequential declines in real GDP growth, which has oftentimes been correlated with recessions in the past. Now, it's not a technical recession, given that the National Bureau of Economic Research hasn't called it a recession, partly because unemployment rate has stayed low and job growth has been strong. But regardless of how you look at it mathematically, real GDP growth has been quite poor. But what's important to understand as it relates to recessions is it's really not an on-off switch, yes or no and not an if-then statement of if recession, then this happens to the market. There's a lot of variability around both the recession and the stock market correction, where you can often see mild recessions. So not every recession is the great financial crisis. And you can often see more mild corrections in the stock market. Not every correction in the stock market is a peak trough contraction of
3: 50%. So that's, thank goodness, because we don't want 50%. But when it comes to markets, what are you keeping an eye on right now? So, what I look
4: at and what I focus on is the fact that stocks are a discounting mechanism. And that kind of essentially means that they can price in bad news faster than it occurs. So, oftentimes at turning points, you can end up in this situation where stocks actually advance, even though the news either didn't get any better or might have even gotten a little bit worse. And we can use some mathematical indicators to gauge how much of the bad news the equity market is discounted. One of those measures is valuation spreads. And it's just a mathematical difference between lowly stocks on PE and highly valued stocks and it's a measure of fear because what you see is during times of crisis investors sell anything they think is risky they buy anything that they think is safe and even though past performance is not a prediction for future results that oftentimes over a one-year time horizon provides you opportunities in the equity market despite the fact that the news gets no better and oftentimes the market is led by economically sensitive sectors like consumer discretionary or financial that may have
3: discounted the recession or the contraction earlier than most other sectors. You know, I think back in the recent past and when the stock market has gotten beaten up, you could look to your bond positions and be like, oh, thank goodness, that's doing okay." But not this year. Bond investors have had a really rough time. So how do you see the outlook for bonds?
4: Right. Partly that's been a function of inflation, which is why the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates so rapidly, and that interest rate rise is negatively correlated to the prices of Treasury securities, the bond portion of your portfolio. But that's really where we've been, and the question is, where are we going? And the data has changed quite dramatically in the fixed income markets the way I look at it. So what we're seeing is the Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation, which is the core PCE deflator, the annualized run rate over the last three months is running around 4 and that's about in line with the two-year treasury yield. When you get close to parity, that oftentimes provides opportunity in the fixed income market as well. And especially so when the two-year treasury yield is in advance of some underlying levels of measures of longer-term uh, uh, break-even inflations. So I think that the risk reward has shifted dramatically from where we were a year ago in the fixed income portion of the market. And I think that there is opportunity there as well.
3: You know, I love hearing your optimism. Um, I presume that Fidelity professionals talk to a lot of different kinds of people. So what are their clients most concerned about right now?
4: I think most investors are concerned about the high levels of inflation and the market volatility really eating into their potential financial plan and financial goals for themselves. And here I think it's really important to work with a financial professional, and we have people at Fidelity, that help you think through your individual goals, your individual risk tolerance, and come up with a plan that can work for you. And you have someone to call if at any time life happens and you need to change your plan. So if you have a plan, I think it's time to dust it off and talk to a financial professional about it. And if you don't have a plan, it might be time to call someone and think through the trade-off between the risks that that we've seen to date and the you know, potential returns that you'll see over the course of your financial
3: plans portfolio. Unfortunately, it's time to wrap this conversation up. Thank you, Denise, for all the great insights. And now I'll hand it back over to The Washington Post.
0: And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. For those who are just joining us, I'm Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, And my second guest today is Dr. C. Nicole Mason, president and CEO of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Nicole.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here.
0: Oh, wonderful! I just love talking to women about money. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we may not be on all the money,
0: but we definitely can handle the money. Um, so know. listen. <laughs> so you coined the term "C session." <laughs> uh, what is a "She session" uh, for for those who don't have never heard that term before?
1: So for those of you who may not know what a she session is, but it's an economic downturn that disproportionately impacts women. And during the pandemic, what we notice is that women bore majority of the job losses um, in the early months of the pandemic, more than 55%, and um, also economic losses. So that is an, a she session. Yeah, great.
0: All right. So what is the long term consequences of an economy or women being forced out of the workforce?
1: Well, it really, it really depends. So women early on in their career, so just on ramping into the workforce at the start of the pandemic, many of them have had their uh, careers derailed or have had to go into other sectors that are unrelated to their degrees or jobs. Um, And then also, if we look at the other end of the spectrum in terms of retirement, many women were forced uh, into an early retirement because they were also employed in some of the hardest hit sectors. So we see it at both ends of the spectrum and And uh, women uh, who were solid in their careers, they also had to, in many cases, had to off-ramp because they were responsible for majority of uh, caretaking responsibilities in families.
0: So when that happens, and I know from my own experience, many people are not prepared to live off a retirement income. So now that they're off-ramping sooner, do you think that they are able to handle this early retirement? Are they prepared for it? What would you suggest that they do if they, they've they gone into retirement and they go, uh-oh, there's something
1: wrong? So many women um, who retired early, um, Many of them were married, and so they were able to retire um, earlier than they had anticipated. But we have to understand when anybody retires earlier than they had anticipated, it does have an impact on their bottom line, especially for women of color and women in general, because because of the pay gap, uh, women at the end of their careers uh, have, you know, earn less than, you um, compared to their male counterparts. And for women of color, where their pay gap is wider, um, the earnings, the loss in earnings over a lifetime can be up to a million dollars. So that really translates into dollars um, out of their pocket and not, uh, that doesn't go towards their retirement um, or, you know, a a secure retirement or secure uh, future later on. Right. So, what could what advice you have for women who find themselves in this
0: situation that situation? That's a huge a million dollars. I mean, that's that's a lot of money. What What
1: can they do? So, the truth of the matter is is that once you get to retirement, there's really not much you can do. You are sort of dealing with what you have in your pockets, and so uh, women are strategizing and figuring out how to stretch you know, the money that they do have in retirement. Many women are taking on second careers um, or or going back to work. Um, So so that's how many women are handling it. And then sometimes they're having to depend on family members and their children in order to make ends meet. So when I think about where women end up at the end uh, in in terms of retirement, it really points me in a direction of the things that we might be doing um, to help women retire more securely.
0: Right. Yeah. I wonder what you think about, uh, and I know I find this in my own work in my community and even in my family, because we tend to be caregivers and we are givers. Oftentimes we're giving to adult children, we're giving to grandchildren. Can, do we? Do you think some of the women need to turn this spigot off a little bit so that they have a better retirement?
1: Yeah. So the case or what's true for Black women and Latino women, we are more likely to um, support family members, whether it's our children or a cousin or an aunt. And so really thinking about, um, even if you have um, disposable income, thinking about what that, how you might take that disposable income um, and to, you know, save for retirement and being able to say no. And for many families, especially when um, families are struggling um, and you're in proximity, the, the, your impulse is to, to help. Um, but saying, you know, I have to help myself first and put money aside for for your retirement, which for some people seems so long, long away. But um, it's really not. Um, you know, most, you know, most people are myself. I'll be retiring in about 15 or 20 years. And so making sure I'm able to do so comfortably is is top of mind. Fifteen. Girl, you like you 20. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so, um,
0: <laughs> here. <laughs> um, oh, so good <laughs> so um, let's talk about women in the workforce today. So we know recent data shows that earlier this year, men recovered about $875,000, not thousands, uh, 875,000 new jobs versus women who recovered only about 62,000 jobs. So what do you think? would accelerate women's
1: job recovery? So I think a couple things. So I think better workplace practices and policies. Uh, many women who exited the workforce during the pandemic did so because um, uh, workplaces didn't have flexible work policies, no childcare policies, no paid sick or family leave. And so that really made women make some tough choices, constrained choices, because they're really not choices. And so I think the first thing is making sure people's work, uh, you know, especially in the absence of federal legislation, that workplace policies are fair and equitable and support women's um, re to the workforce and being able to uh, s- sustain employment. Um, and the other thing is, I think many women left jobs like, you know, in sectors like child care, leisure, and hospitality, um, and they're choosing not to go back to those jobs because they weren't high quality jobs, meaning they didn't pay fairly or a decent wage, um, didn't have Healthcare, or paid sick, or family leave. So one of the things that we can do is to make sure that the jobs that women are, the sectors where women are overrepresented, um, that those jobs are actually high-quality jobs. And I think you heard um, Congresswoman uh, um, Ilhan Omar say that if you care about these workers and you believe that they're essential, we have to treat them as such. So that's a great point. So how do we do that? So we've got an industry
0: where women are dominating. They're underpaid, taking care of children, caregivers, both young children and perhaps elderly parents, you know, seniors. It's not the pay is not very well. But then you have women who need to be in the workforce, who need that care. How do you mesh that too? Um, and then they've got demands on their salary. We, all, we know we are still paid less. So there's less money to devote to caregiving. I mean, my goodness, how do we resolve that disconnect between making sure that the women who are going to be taking care of our children and our parents um, also earn a decent living while you know we can't afford the kind of pay that they might need to do that very job?
1: So the cost of childcare for most uh, working families is out of control. So families can spend up to 30% of their income Sometimes more, especially if you have more than one child on care. So for me, there's really no way around it. We do need um, universal child care or federal support for child care to support families. Um, you know, it, and it sounds like um, a, a utopia or sort of dreaming big about these things. But you know, we have to remember that one time, and uh, when we needed women workers in the workforce, we did have subsidized child care, and many other countries just. Um, similar and similar positions as the U.S. also has um, universal child care. And I think it would be really a game changer for not only women's earnings, but also being able to focus on other things like housing, buying a home, saving. Like if you're not spending 30 percent of your income on care, you know, what else can you set yourself up for in terms of retirement and and, and, and in terms of saving? Right. Now, we don't have that kind of thing in place
0: yet. And doubtful this Congress is so divided (laughs) might actually put it in place. So you're in this situation now, the policy hasn't happened yet. What can you do to afford care or provide the care that you need that will allow you to work? Because if you're not in a workforce and you can't save for retirement, it just seems like a crazy cycle. So what advice would you have for women who have find themselves in this position and policy is not
1: caught up to the need yet? So really, it's a lose-lose situation for women and families. <laughs> so um, so, uh, so I just want to say that. But in the absence of federal action, um, businesses, private businesses are on the front lines of this conversation and should be on the front lines, and many businesses are um, you know, doing something to help support families with um, issues related to care. Um, even at our IWPR, we, we, at the start of the pandemic, we provided $4,000 of, and we're a small organization, $4,000 um, for care to families, um, um, care subsidy, um, and many organizations and companies and corporations are doing the same they're re-examining their workplace policies and seeing how they can be of a support um you know to to working families so i would say that yes there's inaction at the federal level but there's an opportunity for private sector the private sector businesses and companies and corporations to take the lead and so um women and affinity groups within companies having that conversation and opening it up to you know have the conversation but about what is a fair and equitable workplace for for women so that they can advance in their careers and childcare is one of those issues that come up time and time again yeah
0: um, that's so great that you do that for your workers. Um, uh, I'm just, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, very progressive. I mean, you know, because honestly, you're talking about this and you're putting, you're, 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 you're um, an example of what you're calling for other people to do. And that's not always the case. So kudos to you for that. Um, so we're talking about this. This is a great way to segue into sort of the gender pay gap, right? If we've got more money, we'd have more money for childcare. So <laughs> has persistent gender pay gap hurt women as they build their financial futures? And And how has that pay gap affected
1: Black women in particular? So, you know, you already know the answer to this. <laughs> I, we need a- <laughs> I asked you anyway. <laughs> you know, you know the we all know the answer to this. So, you know, if we keep at the same pace, it will take, you know, 60 years for us to close the pay gap. That's at 89 cents on the dollar. But for Black women, it'll take 100 years. For Latino women, it would take 200 years to close the pay gap. And it's only closed about 20 cents in, in the last 50 years. And so, what I like to say when I talk about the pay gap for women, especially, is that because uh, it seems so Existential and something very abstract. I said, no, that's money you don't have. You know, for a down payment on your house, your your goals get delayed. Um, that's less, less money you have to pay for your children's education, to save for retirement. So it really does hurt your bottom line. Even if all you want to do to, is go to brunch, <laughs> you can't do that with less money. Um, but for for many women, it's really consequential in terms of you know their financial goals and their financial their their financial uh, futures. And so. You know, when I think about our work and what we're trying to do here at IWPR, it's really get at the crux of that 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 gen- that gender pay gap and really um, try to you know work to uncover it and and close it, accelerate the closing because we we really don't have you know 200 years to wait uh, to to, re- to reach pay parity.
0: Right. As good as we look, we definitely
1: don't have no two or
0: years. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so, you know, I wonder if that leads us to the discussion about pay transparency. Right. Um, you know, if that is that a problem and that keeps the pay lower. Um, it's so interesting. I heard a conversation about someone, a woman who was being uh, recruited by another company. And the current uh, manager was like, "Well, I'm not gonna pay, you know, I'm not gonna pay her that much more, without recognizing that she probably was underpaid when she got that position, and that is often the case. And a lot of that is because there's not a lot of pay uh, transparency. And then, of course, we could have the conversation. This is at the end of this question about how do you ask for what you are worth, and how difficult that can be for women. So that's a two-part question." pay transparency mm-hmm. what do you think about that and how we can resolve that and also what can women do to 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 fit, to um advocate for themselves for better pay
1: so i think we just need to democratize pay and make it transparent fair um and equitable so that everybody knows what if you're in a company, you have a compensation scheme where there's not a lot of discretion between managers. So this manager is paying this much um, to a man um, and another manager for the same role is is deciding to pay another person with the same qualifications, a different um, salary. Um, And pay transparency is one of the ways that we can do that. And by pay transparency, that's really bold. So it's about salary bands. So um, knowing For a position, how much a person can be paid. I don't think that's enough. I think you also need to be, it needs to be experienced and education based because that band um, is, can be like a $40,000 ban, and it's up to the person or the woman or to negotiate that salary. And we all know that when women negotiate salaries, they often lose out, they can actually end up getting less. Um, One of the other things I think is really important is that employers do away with which many companies have asking about salary history, because as you just said, and pointed out that if I started out my career earning a particular amount and because I wasn't able to negotiate or I didn't know to negotiate that figure becomes that's the basis of my salary even as I climb the career my career ladder so I would say Also banning um, corporations or um, companies from, you know, asking about salary history is also really critically important. And then the last thing I'll say is also collecting pay data, because when you collect pay data, which California has has a new, really great law, but when you collect data, you can see the discrepancy by race and by gender. And right now, we actually don't know how deep the pay gap is because we don't have the good data on it.
0: So that's really good. So again, I mean, this question is: till policy catches up, whether federal or the company themselves, what tips do you have for women to uh, ask for a raise? And particularly, should they use inflation as a strategy to say, "I need more money"? Um, you know, I I know in my own career, I've gotten better at it uh, about making sure that I ask for what I am worth. And that question, that sort of comes up, well, so-and-so makes, you know, you're making more than so-and-so. I was like, listen, it's like, for me, it's like a star marquee prey on a baseball team. You don't ask, (laughs) you don't don't tell him he needs to pay with someone else coming in as a rookie. Uh, So Mm -hmm. what tips do you have for women to ask for that raise? And should they use inflation as a strategy to get more money?
1: Well, I mean, I think you can use inflation, but employers are aware of inflation at this point, point. Um, and so inflation might be one of the things that you point to 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 ask for a raise. But really, being able to stand on your work um, and what you've you know what you your returns and what you've brought to the company, um, you know, I think is really critically important. But I don't also don't want to, um, you know, undermine or you know like this <laughs> the. the this is a very structural problem. So, um, although individual women are negotiating for raises and promotions, this this issue is bigger than any one woman. Um, I think, as Megan, you know, Rapinoe, the soccer player, said, like you can't outperform inequality. So you can be the best worker, credentialed, and you still are not gonna. You may not be paid what you're worth. Um, so I think. Um, so that's why it's important to you know. Ask your employer to do a compensation, internal compensation study to see where everyone lands uh, and really start to open up the conversation. By the way, you have to know that it's not illegal for employees to um, discuss their salaries amongst one another, even though most, you know, the certain offices or certain culture, work cultures frowns upon those kinds of discussions. But I think once we start making and normalizing those conversations, it makes it easier for women and people to negotiate.
0: No, that's such a great point and I love that you're right. You can't you can't outperform um this this pay gap and the history of being underpaid. Uh but I will say this that for you as an individual, um I know I do this at the beginning of the year. I create a document and I document everything. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So that when I go into that conversation, I've got the evidence base, and it's not just based on emotion. It's not just based on inflation. It's like this is what I did done through the year. Here are the notes that you sent to me during the year, and hit my boss. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, as you know, there's there's policy and individual, and I think that's what you've been saying. You know, we we've got to have these policies in place, both federal and and corporate. But as an individual, you know, you know, you should know what you are worth. Ask those questions. Be bold about it. Because if you are not, it can impact your financial security for your family and your retirement. So, Nicole, oh, my gosh, I could talk to you for another hour or two. Thank you so much for joining us today at uh, Washington
1: Post Live. Thank you so much. This this has been great.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.